0: The Lord be with you. And also be. Lift up your hearts. We, lift up the Lord. we greet you here in the Nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, here in the heart of the city of Boston. We greet you if you're listening over airwaves across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM or over internet signals around the world at WBUR.org. Welcome here to the Nave of Marsh Chapel for our ordered service of Sunday worship. We greet particularly this morning the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Knust in her second sermon this, se- this summer as part of our National Summer Preacher Series, and we are grateful for her presence among us and bearing the word this morning. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Please be seated. Father, you are always present. Forgive us for not reflecting your faithfulness. Jesus, you are always self-giving. Forgive us for living for ourselves. Holy Spirit, you always lead us forward. Forgive us for holding back. We wait on God in silent prayer as the choir leads us in the singing of the traditional prayer of confession, Kyrie eleison. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God.
1: A lesson from the second book of Samuel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 and 12 through 19. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obedidim to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, According to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope in Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: And now, please join me in reading from Psalm 24 with the Antiphon. the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessings from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory.
0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Saint Mark, chapter six, verses fourteen through twenty-nine. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, "John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him." But others said, "It is Elijah," and others said, "It is a prophet." like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, "'John, whom I beheaded, has been raised.' For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, "'It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife.' And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ.
3: Good morning. It is a tremendous privilege to be here with you again for a second Sunday. I'm truly enjoying my trip back to beloved BU, again from rural Maine. My parents get back from their trip tomorrow, so I had yet another week of mucking barns and caring for chickens and keeping track of gardens in this heat, which we've had up in Maine as well. So it's lovely to be back and to be a city girl again for the day and to be here among you with my, my dear friend's new and old." Nice passage, right? I mean, did that have to come up during the lectionary when I was preaching? Okay. Anyway, here's the sermon. It's nearly blueberry season in Maine again, which is just about my favorite time of year. My son Leander and I took the kayaks over to the little pile of boulders we call Blueberry Island this past week. And sure enough, the first blueberries had just started to turn that lovely purple blue that promises a delightful morning of blueberry picking from the canoe, followed by blueberry pancakes made in a cast iron pan at the camp. Wonderful. If I could pick what heaven is like, I would definitely choose Blueberry Island on a calm, hot summer day in late July. But blueberry season also reminds me of another less happy blueberry story, one that points out that we're not quite in heaven yet. I usually tell this story for a laugh Because, really, if we weren't laughing, we would have to cry. So, I guess I'll tell it that way here, too. One summer, the last summer my grandma Jean visited Maine before her death, blueberry season came early. For my mom, blueberry season means a flurry of activity. She bakes pies. She makes muffins. She boils mason jars and puts up blueberry jam for the winter. As she was explaining to my grandmother, if there are blueberries, all other activities must and will stop. There will be a full day in the kitchen. My grandmother, however, could not abide with this nonsense. You see, Grandma Jean had left her own own farm behind as a young teenager and never looked back. Her family lost their farm in Iowa during the Depression, piling up all their worldly belongings onto the back of their old Ford and trekking across across the country to seek a new life in California. These were hungry times and the family barely survived. I can only guess at how wrenching this loss must have been for my grandmother. She dealt with it and with her new life in California by refusing to have anything to do with farming ever again. Her cooking reflected this decision. She never met a can of cream of mushroom soup that she did not like. And the idea of spending a day making jam seemed preposterous to her. So there was my mom in the kitchen, boiling jars and picking through her flat of blueberries as she removed the little leaves and green berries that inevitably get caught up in a blueberry rake. And there was my grandmother sitting at the kitchen table and offering a running commentary about the fruitlessness of making homemade jam during the modern age when you can just as well go to the grocery store and buy blueberry jam for three dollars. This argument masquerading as a discussion and hiding within it decades, if not a lifetime, of mother-daughter pain and frustration, finally ended with a daring riposte on the part of Grandma Jean. But Mom, my own mother, said, I like to make jam. And besides, tonight we'll have a fresh homemade blueberry pie. Blueberry pie, Grandma said, I hate blueberry pie. OK, then, no blueberry pie for Grandma. And no love and approval for Mom, who had somehow and perhaps not entirely accidentally, chosen to live on a farm and to therefore emulate her grandparents rather than her mother. As for me observing this whole exchange, I just tried to make myself disappear. Thinking about blueberry pies, blueberry season, and the heavenly place that is Blueberry Island this past week, while also hearing these lectionary readings, brought this family fable to my mind Reminding me about how unlike heaven, even earthly heavens can be, especially once people and families with long memories get involved. And really, we were and are such a lucky, happy family. At the end of the day, we love one another. We show up for one another. By contrast, as I'm sure you noticed, the Herods were indisputably a mess, as Mark points out in this long digression on the death of John the Baptist. Mark is a decidedly ungenerous critic of the Herodian family, although few surviving writings have much that is positive to say about the Herods and the links they took to secure their Roman-sponsored dynasty. Nevertheless, in this story, the Gospel writer goes to exceptional lengths to embellish a set of unsubstantiated rumors about Herod Antipas, Herodias, and an unnamed daughter that, upon further inspection, don't quite hold up. But never mind the facts. By the time Mark was written, the Herodian dynasty had lost much of its influence, crushed, Mark implies, by the weight of its own corruption. And he certainly does give us a tabloid shocker version of their history, complete with a degraded, sexually suspect puppet king, a wicked, bloodthirsty, and conniving queen, and a beautiful young princess willing to do just about anything to please her father or her stepfather, it depends on which manuscript one is reading, and her mother or her stepmother, see above, including luring her father into executing a righteous man, Mark's hero, John the Baptist. Who needs a hot, thrilling, and violent summer blockbuster when one can simply read today's gospel lesson? In terms of facts, here's what we do know. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist executed. Herod Antipas was married to Herodias, who had been previously married to his brother, another Herod, whom Mark confuses with Philip, tetrarch of an area north of the Sea of Galilee. Antipas himself had also been married before, to an Abatean princess who may or may not have been named Phasaelus. According to the historian Josephus, Herodias had a daughter named Salome by her first husband, Though the young woman in this story may also be a daughter of Antipas from his first marriage, named Herodias, like her mother or stepmother, as some manuscripts of Mark suggest, and as the NRSV would have it. At any rate, Herodias' daughter, or Herod's, Herod, in, in history, actually, Herodias's daughter, sorry, it's hard, I, I looked this dynasty up, this is tricky. Herodias' daughter, Salome, really did have a daughter named Salome, really did eventually marry Philip the Tetrarch, another half-brother of Antipas, sometime around 33 CE. Whatever the details of this sordid family history might be, and however fishy Mark's version, the gospel story makes one point clear. The dynastic aspirations of the Herodian family were not only fruitless, They also produced nothing but trouble, either for those sympathetic to Jesus and John the Baptist, or for their own heirs. Indeed, their attempts to secure their privileged position, both at home and with their Roman patrons, came at a high personal and familial cost, dividing brother against brother, mother against daughter, and wife against husband. I'm not a huge fan of how Mark chose to deliver this message today. Did he really have to provide so much ammunition for future purveyors of eroticized, orientalizing representations of the Herods? Oscar Wilde had a lot to work with. Did he really have to take the oh so obvious narrative tack of blaming political corruption on out of control male lust and the wiles of a bloodthirsty woman? Tell me something else. But clearly, all was not well either in Judea or in Galilee during the latter Herodian period, and no amount of political, ideological, or familial intrigue had improved the situation. Both John the Baptist and Jesus were killed, at least in part because of the extremely difficult political circumstances there. And by the time Mark was writing, a number of their followers had certainly been caught up and killed, by the disastrous rebellion that changed the Judean and Galilean landscape forever. How sad that this little earthly slice of heaven, this chosen land of pomegranates and figs, olive trees and honey, had become and still has often remained a home not of peace and harmony, but conflict and pain. Did the Herods know what they were bargaining for when they sought to displace the Hasmoneans, those heirs to the brothers Maccabee, who more or less ruled the area before they did? Did they sometimes regret their palaces, their power, and their influence? I guess we'll never know, because beyond their building projects and the coins they minted, what remains of them are literary depictions that are largely unfriendly. For obvious reasons, the Gospel writers really had nothing at all nice to say about them. And larger public opinion, Mark suggests, was also openly critical. Whatever led to the beheading of John the Baptist, the Judean and Galilean public were outraged, as the rumor about John's possible resurrection suggests. It seems that this rumor was in fact historical, and it followed the following logic. Since Antipas had unjustly killed a righteous man, he would certainly be haunted by the act. He was doomed to face what he had done when the resurrected John justly returned to accuse him and give him his due. Part of what the theory of the resurrection could do for first century Jews, many of whom believed in it long before Jesus ever entered the scene, is promise that heroic horrific murders would be avenged, and that in the end, God would not allow the righteous to suffer. John had won in the court of Judean and Galilean opinion, and Antipas would not easily live his decision down. Our epistle lesson in its own way refers to this promise of resurrection, extending it to include all of Jesus's followers and emphasizing not the revenge that resurrection can offer, but the many good gifts that accrue to those who are faithful to the hope of its coming. As was also the case with the Herods, dynastic succession is in view in Ephesians. But in this case, the dynasty envisioned is described as a gift of God, rather than as a result of human effort. Writing to a wide circle of Pauline Christians, Ephesians promises that the followers of Jesus can rest secure in a divine heritage given to the whole adopted family. We have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians writes. We are wanted children, destined for adoption through Jesus Christ, and we have obtained an inheritance given to us by divine will. Our belonging is made visible with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit which serves as a sign of the coming fulfillment of our family-centered hopes. The relatives of Herod may have gone to extreme lengths to keep their wealth in the family and to secure their rather tenuous position as Roman client kings. But according to Ephesians, the followers of Jesus have simply received every spiritual blessing from the only ruler who truly matters. One family's dysfunction led to the death of John the Baptist. Another adopted family's confidence in their purpose granted them a home in the heavenly places while they awaited the redemption to come. Reading these visions of heaven the last two weeks, I am struck by how often images of family and belonging appear. Defending his apostolic credentials to the Christ followers in Corinth, which is the context of the story of the man who viewed heaven that we read last week, Paul calls himself their parent, proclaiming that he would gladly spend all that he has for the Corinthians. Wouldn't any parent do the same? In his letters, his regular labels for them include holy ones, brothers and sisters in Christ, and children of God. And he concludes his second letter with an admonition to agree, to live in peace and to greet one another with a kiss, just like any happy family would. Ephesians takes the family metaphors even further. Believers are recipients of a divine heritage written in God's will, as it were, and they are part of God's household knit together in love. These visions of paradise and disclosures of the heavenly secrets lead both writers to exhort their audiences to find a way to embody and live out that most elusive of human arrangements, the happy, harmonious family. The problem, of course, is that happy, harmonious families can be less like paradise for their members than Pauline metaphors suggest. As sociologist Cindy Patton points out, The love identified with family feeling can turn out to be an insidiously structured form of obligation rather than an expression of mutual recognition and regard. One must submit to the point of view of the family and thereby serve the family's needs, an obligation that can come at a very high cost for some members. Just think about the scenario Mark was imagining for the daughter of Herod or Herodias, whether or not these events happened as he described them. A young pre-teenaged girl, the Greek word used to describe her suggests that she had not yet hit puberty, dances before her father and, as a reward for pleasing him, is asked to participate in a plot to execute a troubling critic of her family's regime and in a particularly horrific way. Her love for her family requires that she debase herself and become a party to murder. Or what about Herodias passed off from brother to brother, well, actually from uncle to uncle, so that family wealth could be retained? And what about Herod the Great's sons, Herod Antipas and Philip the Tetrarch, who had witnessed the executions of their three elder brothers at the order of their very own father? Or what about the followers of Jesus in Corinth, that new little family of about a hundred believers already competing over which of their leaders could boast of the best heavenly vision? How long did it take to go from new believer in Christ to competitor for God's and the rest of the adopted family's affections? And don't even get me started about David, who I've managed to avoid the last two weeks. Now, obviously, these are extreme examples of what families, actual or adopted, can do to one another and to their children in the name of preserving the family name. But perhaps that is the point. Whatever heaven is like and whatever paradise looks like, surely those who belong there do not and cannot behave like this. Surely God intends something else for God's children. Surely there is some other way. Surely it is possible to intimately love one another without causing one another harm. When my mom and my Aunt Donna were little girls, my Grandma Jean used to like to make them matching dresses by hand. On the wall in the little room in the farmhouse where my sons sleep when we visit, there's a picture of the three of them dressed in matching outfits. My grandmother is so sophisticated with her elaborate necklace, velvet top, and perfectly coiffed 1950s hair. My Aunt Donna and my mother are wearing coordinated velvet jackets and white button-up shirts with Peter Pan collars. My aunt, the elder of the two girls, has her hair combed to look just like her mom. My mom, the little one, has her hair parted on the side. All three are smiling, the broadest smiles you can imagine. All three are so lovely. So beautiful, really, that my heart breaks. Why couldn't my grandmother honor my mom's choice to live on a small farm in Maine? Why can't my mom forgive my grandmother for being, well, so very, very difficult? Why did it take more than 30 years of buried pain and stony silence for my mom and her sister to speak to one another again? Does the loss of an ancestral farm in Iowa have to reverberate forever, if that's what caused the whole mess? Why couldn't Grandma Jean have pretended to like blueberry pie? Blueberry season in Maine is a perfect antidote to apocalyptic visions of doom and destruction. With every purple berry gracefully adorning every improbable blueberry bush, a bush that has somehow eked out its survival on a pile of granite boulders in the middle of a wild pond, a tiny, delicious bit of heaven arrives to greet the summer once again. My sons and I paddle out to see the bushes, just like we have every year since they were born. We watch the kingbirds chattering to one another as they flit from branch to branch of the stunted hemlock trees on the island. Their young have newly fledged. If we are lucky, the loon comes by, sometimes with a baby on her back. We spend the morning glad to be alive, glad that we too belong to this wild pond and to one another. Adopted by the world, secure in the spiritual and material blessings that have marked my own life. I think about the family of which I am a part and the families I have chosen. What sort of heritage am I passing on? To whom do I belong? I suspect that I have made my own mistakes, that I too have served as a reminder that we are not yet in heaven. I am confident that I have. To paraphrase Ephesians, while I may be destined for adoption and have forgiveness through Christ and the grace that God has so graciously extended to me, in the meantime, I am human. And to be human means to fall and to participate, both knowingly and unknowingly, in the fullness of all our human heritages, for good and for ill. Nevertheless, I, too, have a vision of paradise. In my paradise, Grandma Jean loves blueberry pie. Her red hair, a color that never faded, sparkles in the sun. And she sees my mom and loves her for who she is. In my paradise, I would also like to imagine that Herod Antipas, Herodias, and Salome are together with John the Baptist dancing, even now. Mark's battles are no longer mine. In my paradise, having cast off the sin that clings so closely, and found myself blameworthy and blameless both at the same time, I discover that we are all family, and I am very, very glad. May all of us know that we really do belong. May we be glad for the blessing of being here. And may we all find a way to enjoy a delicious blueberry pie. Amen.
0: We come to the time in our service when we join our hearts and minds in prayer, I would invite you to remain standing, be seated, kneel, or come to the communion rail according to your tradition. As we join in our call to prayer, lead me, Lord. I offer each intention this morning, I would invite you to respond, we pray to you, O Lord. That this day may be holy, good, and joyful, we pray to you, O Lord. That we may offer to you our worship and our work, we pray to you, O Lord. That we may strive for the well-being of all creation, we pray to you, O that in the pleasures and pains of life we may know the love of Christ and be thankful. We pray to you, O Lord. That we may be bound together by your Holy Spirit in communion with John the Baptist and all your saints, entrusting one another and all our life to Christ. We pray to you, O Lord. Let us commend ourselves and all for whom we pray to the mercy and protection of God. Gladden our hearts, O God, with the remembrance of the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, give us this day such blessings through our worship of you that the work to come may be spent in the awareness of your grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We conclude our prayers by joining heart and voice together in the prayer that Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, Peace of the Lord be always with, you. always with you. We greet you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel again this Sunday morning, and we be- bring greetings on behalf of our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, who is away in these summer weeks. We hope that you will join us after the service for coffee hour downstairs. We would note that coffee hour is in the hallway this morning. We are concluding construction here at Marsh Chapel of several of the rooms downstairs and are a bit low on space, especially because. Also following service this morning is uh, our first attempt at a vacation Bible school. So for all of our young folks here this morning who would like to participate, that will run from 12.30 to 2.30 p.m. this afternoon in the Marsh Room, thus moving coffee hour to the hallway. We appreciate your consideration in this regard. We encourage you to turn your... Meditate in heart and mind on the choir's singing of Geschichtuslied by Johannes Brahms during the offertory this morning. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
2: God, receive these gifts for service and ministry according to your will. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
3: the psalmist. We are justified by grace through faith, promises Ephesians. Go forth from this place confident that you belong, that God's steadfast love extends to you, and that together through God's grace, we too can know Christ and be at home. Amen.